It's 1970 and you're a young detective sergeant in Yorkshire. You're used to shopliftings, assaults, even the occasional murder, but then you get asked to be involved in a curious case of espionage. At the height of the Cold War, the information being passed could have been the difference between life and death. There was a jamming device for to, to make sure that the V-bomber force didn't get spotted in, in, in with radar. This is a story of double agents from behind the Iron Curtain communicating in plain sight with a spy on your patch. They were pinning notes to each other. It's called a dead letter drop. There is a main suspect, but should the security services be looking at him or his flamboyant, unfaithful wife? Choose to ride to work on a bike wearing a white bikini and she was very attractive. <laughs> and I can imagine the, 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 the miners of Maltby being quite amused by it. Just because she has a double life, does that make her complicit? And what security lapses could have allowed a spy to continue operating in suburban Yorkshire for a decade? What was the extent of this treachery? And the detective who unlocked the case, who discovered the dead letter drop, has never spoken publicly about it before. My name's Robert Murphy. This is Behind the Crimes. Behind the Crimes is the podcast that tells you about the biggest or most interesting cases from people who were involved, victims, detectives, experts, and sometimes even the criminals themselves. For more than 20 years, I've covered some of Britain's highest profile crime stories for television news. In this series, I'll be making a deep dive into each case to see how crimes were solved or how criminals managed to evade justice. If you want to see evidence from each inquiry, watch video clips, read more, or get in touch. Subscribe at robertsmurphy.substack.com. Please do rate and review our podcast, and we would love you to spread the word. Please share it too. This episode is called The Spy, His Wife, Her Lovers, and The Dead Letter Drop. For this episode, I've interviewed a former detective, Michael Burdis, and we recorded this across a landline, so the sound quality isn't quite to our usual standard, but I hope it doesn't detract from the story. Please do forgive the occasional click or hiss. Now, in spring 1970, Detective Sergeant Michael Burdis was working for the West Yorkshire Constabulary, but as well as his regular roles, he had extra responsibilities. One of the jobs I was given was to look after what they call special branch. I mean, it's, a main, it's really 
His special branch role was largely administrative, but then one day he got a strange note from the security services. We then got a letter uh, from the security service saying that they received information, a spy that was leaving information, how communication was being made with letters being and information being left at an RAC box. Now the RAC stands for Royal Automobile Club and it's a roadside assistance service much like the Automobile Association in the UK or the AAA in the USA. Back in the days before mobile or cell phones, the RAC and AA had phone boxes dotted next to roads around the country from where stranded motorists could call for help if their cars broke down. They were about eight feet high, they were painted light blue and they had white letters painted clearly on the outside, R-A-C. Now Michael was given scant details about what was going on. You just had to find this R-A-C box. There was a description of, it wasn't in a lay-by, but it had, a, uh, it stood back from a road and it had an embankment uh, behind it uh, and uh, it was near a sign that, that pointed to the M1. Well, the M1 was brand new then. In fact, it, it wasn't as far as West Yorkshire. Um, and, uh, and also, there was a hotel uh, nearby and, and a telephone kiosk. And I was given the job of, of touring the whole of West Yorkshire to try and find this, this uh, RAC box. And I went to the RAC office, regional office in Leeds, and I looked at all their photographs of their boxes and that, and none of them matched, and, and I just didn't find it, and nobody else uh, could find this um, RAC box. Weeks were passing. The spy was still operating. Detective Sergeant Michael Burdis couldn't find this RAC box. In fact, he had no idea what this was all about. So what was the story? What did a breakdown phone booth on the side of a road in Yorkshire have to do with international espionage, with spies and spooks? Michael Burdis was kept in the dark. It was a need-to-know basis. The people that were involved in the investigation um, weren't told all that was happening. They were given specific jobs to do, uh, but but the security services were, were concerned that um, because they were not being vetted and things like that, uh, these, these officers weren't, weren't to, to be told too much, which was a bit daft, really. Years later, Michael Burdis would find this out, but he didn't know it at the time. This story centres around what, on a first glance, seemed a normal, hard-working, intelligent family. Nicholas Prager and his wife, Jana. The couple were in their early 40s. They lived in the quiet village of Bramley near Rotherham in South Yorkshire. He was an engineer, she worked at a school. But they weren't from Yorkshire, not even from Britain. Nicholas Prager had been born in 1928 in Austria, 
but his parents had been from Czechoslovakia and he'd moved there soon after his birth. His dad had been a big Anglophile, fighting alongside British forces in the First World War and even working in the British Embassy in Prague. He'd always wanted his son to be British. It was the right nationality, he told little Nicholas growing up. At the age of 14, at school, Nicholas met Jana. Now she'd had a traumatic youth. She never knew her father. Her mother, who was a doctor, was taken to a Nazi concentration camp when Jana was 13. Jana was then raised by her aunt and didn't see her mother again until after the war. Both Nicholas and Jana were exceptionally intelligent. He had a, a scientific degree from, from Czechoslovakia when he was educated at the university there. Jana had also studied for a degree but had dropped out before graduating. In 1948, when they were 20, Nicholas and Jana got married and they had a child. As communists tightened their grip on Czechoslovakia, Nicholas got a job in England in the Royal Air Force. He was a radar technician, earning £19 a week, which was a good salary, and Jana came over the following year. They were in Britain for a decade. They had two more children, but in 1959, Jana's aunt died and she inherited her property. In the days of the Cold War, you couldn't just pop to Prague and cash it in. She needed to go to the Czech Embassy in London to ask for a visa. And that was when she encountered two men. One was a consul, a chap called Bohumil Malek. As well as being a consul, Malek was a spy. She also got to know another spy, Frantisek August. She later denied it, but there were claims she had an affair with August. Now, whether their relationship was sexual or not, she got her visa and Jana and Nicholas visited Prague and from then on they would go there occasionally. In the following year, in 1960, things started happening. Firstly, Nicholas Prager's RAF unit was transferred to an airbase at Finningley near Rotherham and he moved his family up north. He had an important job developing a piece of technology which, in the event of war, could have been the difference between life and death. The jamming device for to, to make sure that the V-bomber force didn't get spotted in, 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 with radar. So it used to jam the radar to give and give the, the enemy the impression that what they were looking at was in a different location. It sort of diverted the, the, um, the, the signal that they got from the radar. These devices had code names. Blue Diver, Red Steer, Green Palm and Yellow Hammer. They all worked in tandem with each other uh, to, to cause this disruption of the radar signals. But Nicholas Prager was becoming disenchanted with Britain. He was clever, but he was also overlooked and underpaid. Prager was jealous of the civilian uh, scientists who were working on this project at RAF Finningley. He was jealous of the, the scientists because they were getting about twice as much as he was in salary uh, and, and he was doing most of the thinking. He was disgruntled. He, he thought that he, his, his, his knowledge was better than the, the scientists who'd been involved in it. Mm. Um, I think he probably was as well. To Nicholas Prager, he was getting neither the remuneration nor recognition he deserved, and he was in contact with spies from behind the Iron Curtain, 
1961, Czechoslovakia was solidly part of the communist bloc. So what did his Czech connections want? Simple. Prager was creating it. It was part of uh, Prager's job to write the service manuals for these, for these devices. So how they would be fitted to the aircraft and how they would be maintained. Prager needed to make a copy of this secret document. How would he do it? Now, if you think espionage involves blueprints hidden in a concealed heel of a shoe or using a cigarette lighter that doubles as a camera, well, it might. But the case of Nicholas Prager isn't so fanciful. In the days before smartphones with cameras, you needed to get film developed. But a fairly new, popular innovation was the instant camera, like a Polaroid, which developed the image there and then. He was given money to buy a Polaroid camera, which Polaroid cameras were very new in this country in those days. And, and he also bought um, a close-up kit so that he could actually photograph pictures um, and documents, which, which you couldn't normally do with, with Polaroid cameras. Uh, but Nicholas Prager couldn't smuggle a large Polaroid camera into RAF Finningley. That would be too obvious. How could he photograph his top-secret manual about a Cold War aeroplane jamming device? The answer was horrifically simple. He just walked out of the airbase with the documents and he took them home. There overnight the pictures were taken and he returned them the next day. Security was frankly terrible. Now in 1961 several things were happening. Prager was due to finish his work at the RAF, but he applied for a short extension which was approved. He also visited the Czech Embassy in London. The handover of the documents almost certainly happened then. Then, Prager left his job and started working for a company called English Electrics, which had interests in Czechoslovakia, and he would go there sometimes. Neither the British security services nor the RAF knew anything about the leaks, and his life continued. But in the late 1960s, there was a series of defections. These included a man called Joseph Frolic, but also Malik and August defected too. Now you remember Malik was the Prager's contact at the Czech embassy in London. He'd got the Prager's the visa to go to Prague when Jana wanted to sell her aunt's house. He was also a spy. And August was the spy Jana Prager was said to have had an affair with. the American embassy, I think, they went into and defected and they went then, they were then went to, uh, to New York and were, were, that's where they were given shelter. They gave information about an MP uh, and that's what was, was the original start of the whole thing. And, and, and eventually this MP was, was prosecuted. Labour politician Will Owen was the MP for Morpeth in the northeast of England. He was arrested in January 1970 and charged with communicating information useful to the enemy. He resigned and went on trial in May. There, it was shown he had taken monthly payments from a Czech intelligence officer and had also discussed political developments. But he denied that he'd ever spoken of anything secret investigators could never find any secret documents and he was acquitted later in the year. It was all a bit of a mess. A high-profile prosecution of a former member of parliament, double agents, secret payments, but the defector's information hadn't led anywhere. 
What about the photos they'd received a decade earlier in the 1960s? They told the British about this, but now the authorities were reluctant. And, and the Metropolitan Police, uh, they, they did the prosecution. Um, and, and so when uh, he gave information about Prager, when these two gave information about Prager, the Met wouldn't, wouldn't prosecute uh, because they were that had the fingers burnt and, and didn't want to be involved anymore in, in, uh, in causing trouble. Instead of going all guns blazing, the security services took it easy, asking special branch officers like Michael Burdis to work on the information they'd been fed. And this is where that RAC box that we talked about at the beginning of the episode comes in. They then gave information about a spy that was leaving information uh, and leaving communicating with them um, in, in various ways uh, and it related to a, a, what they called an RAC box and it was this RAC box that I was given the job of uh, I was a detective sergeant at the time and I was given the job of finding this RAC box in in the Yorkshire area. Michael Burdis looked and looked Without the REC box, there was no investigation. Michael Burdis was involved in a case of Cold War espionage, but he couldn't find the key piece of evidence, the eight-foot-high bright blue phone box with RAC painted on the side. And then uh, at the spring bank holiday, uh, we were, I was day off and we were taking, I took the family to Hallisage. Mm. And on the way to Hallisage, uh, on the A625 Chapel Henry Frith Road, uh, through Sheffield, I passed the Dormore Hotel, which was standing at a junction with a sign pointing to the M1. And opposite this sign was an AA box, box number 123. And there was an embankment behind it. Um, and there was no doubt that this was, this was the box we were looking for, but it was AA, not RAC. So I dropped the family off at, uh, at Haversage. Uh, garden centre when didn't we didn't have cameras and things like that and so I had to go to Rotherham police station and disconnect the prisoner's camera that was on a stand that used to take photographs of prisoners that had been arrested pinched all the, the film I could find <laughs> and, and, and took this and came back and took photographs of this uh, this AA box and the, the land behind it and the sign down to the hotel and the, the, the Dormo Hotel, etc. And then I had to get those processed because, you, you know, in those days you got to process film through all sorts of uh, fluids and what have you to get, to get pictures out of your films. Um, so I took that to police headquarters, which was in Wakefield, uh, and got the, the photographic department to process this for us and then took the pictures down to the security service and we, we met on the M1 uh, at Watford Gap and I handed these photographs over. They then went on the night flight to America where these two defectors were. They were shown these pictures and said, that's the box. <laughs> so we knew then that we got the right box uh, and we got an inquiry on our hands. Confirmation at last. Not an REC box, the defectors had got it wrong. An AA box. And inside was the key confirmation 
that this was the right booth. He'd been pinning messages on the side of this this box, and it was where those marks were that that uh, because you can look at a hundred RAC boxes or AA boxes, and there won't be any drawing pin marks on them. Instructions were being given to Prager, and Prager was passing notes back to them. Uh, by pinning these messages on the back of the AA box. There was another, it's called a dead letter drop, but there was another dead letter drop somewhere in Roach Abbey, which is near Maltby. Um, and that's a ruin. Um, and I spent a long, long time, well, two or three of us did, trying to find where this this uh, this dead letter drop was. We never did find that. Um, it was behind some rocks, uh, some stones from the ruins of this uh, abbey. The defectors had also named Nicholas Prager to the British Secret Services, but they didn't want to go racing in. There wasn't really much evidence of anything apart from the word of a couple of defectors and some drawing pin marks in a phone box. They'd have to build a picture of the suspected spies in suburbia. type of inquiry is the opposite of the way that you investigate crime. Um, you, you, as a detective, you knock on a door and ask questions and, and did you see anything and have you seen anything? With this type of crime, you can't, you can't ask that sort of question because the public want to know, well, what are you asking that about and why are you wanting to know that? So you don't have a, a, a focus point that you can use to inquire in. So you, you do, you're working in the opposite way to what you would normally do as a, a, a detective asking questions of the neighborhood. Um, and there were a number of people that were regular visitors to uh, the Prager house in, in Maltby. Uh, and, and we couldn't explain that and we didn't understand who they were. So it was finding out who they were. And, and one of them turned out to be a flight sergeant in the RAF. One of the chaps that, that allowed us to use his house uh, as an observation post at the back of the house was a, a school crossing warden. Um, and he was really helpful to us and, and didn't ask too many questions. And, and we were able to use the whole of his, his the, the back part of his house because he overlooked the back of the Prager house. Yes, now this is where the British authorities started noticing Nicholas Prager's wife, Jana. She was 42 years old and very striking. She was a very um, active lady. She taught uh, languages at Maltby Grammar School, which was quite a, a, a prestigious school in those days. Um, and, and she used to ride to work on a bike wearing a white bikini. And she was very attractive. Uh, and I can imagine the, 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 the miners of Maltby being quite amused by it. She had lots of visitors to the family home, particularly men when Nicholas wasn't there. She was much more active in her, uh, 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 her friendships, if you like. One of the people that was, was going to and from the house was, was a bank manager from Sheffield. Well, at this shop, this bank manager used to cut the grass for the at the at the house, um, and there was obviously some relationship there. Do you know what it was like when you had offices in the observation points, and you would see 
a flight sergeant turn up from yeah. nowhere or a bank manager from nowhere yeah. cutting the lawn and well and that's right that's right well we had to do then a lot of very discreet inquiries to find out who they were um there was another chap who turned up in a in a car a skoda car um and and that had been bought from a, a, a car dealers in sheffield and and i think that she must have got yana must have got a decent discount on this car because uh he, he, this this chap kept turning up at the house and into the back door and and, and spend the afternoon or evening there and then and then disappear again. All those inquiries we needed to be sure that they were part of you know, a bigger organisation or or just what they were they were doing. Who were these men? A bank manager who mowed the lawn, a flight sergeant. The authorities learned she'd been in an on-and-off relationship with a chief technician called Francis Patient. Were they spies? Or lovers? Or both? After months of watching, the authorities learned that Yana's boyfriends were there for sex, not secrets. It took quite some time to um, to develop sufficient uh, assurances that we, we knew what we were doing rather than just going blindly into saying you must be stealing secrets and, and passing them on um, because we wouldn't have been successful. Uh, he would have said nothing and we wouldn't have got very far. They waited until January 1971, eight months later, to speak with Nicholas Prager. I went to get the warrant uh, right. from, from um, the magistrate in Rotherham. It was a Sunday morning, January the 31st, when Detective Chief Superintendent Donald Craig knocked at his door in Bramley near Rotherham. Craig showed Prager a search warrant issued under the Official Secrets Act 1911 and was told he wanted to question him regarding what he described as a serious matter. The detective asked Prager if he would prefer to go to Doncaster Police Station and he agreed that he did. In the car, on the 25-minute drive to the police station, Prager was reported as saying, This whole thing's a fantasy, but I'll help you all I can. They arrived at 9.15am. Yana followed soon after. Prager was not cautioned by police. He was questioned in three sessions. In the first, between 9.15 and 12.30, Prager made no admissions and denied taking photos or meeting Czech agents. He then had lunch and a short sleep. During a second session, Prager was asked whether he'd been regarded as an agent by Czech intelligence. Prager said, It didn't happen like that. Anything I've done was done unwittingly. But you must know, my family are out of this. He was then cautioned by police. In the third session, soon after, he verbally admitted to buying the Polaroid camera, the close-up kit, and photographing what he described as stuff. After more questioning, he admitted he'd taken photos relating to the Blue Diver jamming device, handing these to Malik in London and passing notes to Czech officers when he was in that country on holiday. He said he'd been paid £300, which he regarded as an advance of the sale of Jana's aunt's house. Prager was charged with three counts. Making a sketch that might be useful to an enemy, communicating documents that might be useful to an enemy... These both related to the photos from 1961. And there was a third charge that he entered into an arrangement with a foreign agent in 1971. His trial 
began in June 1971 at Leeds Assizes Court. There, he denied everything. He'd never been a communist, wasn't even interested in politics. He had no money in Czech or Russian bank accounts and said he'd never been to the Czech embassy to pass on secrets or documents. The prosecution presented the shop worker who said he could remember selling the Polaroid camera and the close-up kit to Prager 10 years earlier. Prager said he'd bought it to take naked photos of his wife. The prosecution said well, he wouldn't have needed the close-up kit for nude images. His defence barrister said that for the jury to convict Prager, they'd have to be persuaded by a high standard of proof. In short, they couldn't convict him on a whim. They had to be convinced by evidence that he had truly spied. He added that if they did that, Prager must be, as he said, one of the most inefficient amateur spies either in reality or fiction. His defence barrister also criticised the way police had obtained the confession. Prager said in court that he'd made the admissions to the police to protect his wife, but he'd stopped shielding her when he saw the love letters from the RAF chief technician Francis Patient. The trial was box office stuff and the tabloids loved it. Cold War secrets, dead letter drops, a disgruntled RAF officer and his beautiful wife's string of lovers, which included not just the chief technician, but also a Czech intelligence officer. What about Jana? Well, she'd been visiting her husband in prison regularly when he'd been remanded in custody, but just a few days before his trial, she disappeared. The trial had begun on June the 14th, and on the 23rd, after four hours of deliberations, the jury returned with its verdict. They acquitted Prager of the more recent count, the 1971 contact with a Czech agent. But by a majority verdict of 11 jurors to one, they convicted him of the two charges relating to the photos from 1961. His defence barrister said, in mitigation, that Prager had been pressurised by Malik, who'd threatened Jana's mother in Prague, that Jana was the communist and had pressurised him. He was also in need of money. The judge, Lord Widgery, said, Prager, you must appreciate that an offence such as that on which you've been convicted attracts a considerable sentence, not least because it's necessary to show to others who may be similarly tempted that the penalties are severe. Your case is made graver because the secrets which you passed to authorities behind the Iron Curtain were secrets of the utmost importance to this country, the passing of which may have had the most disastrous consequence. He sentenced Prager to 12 years in prison. That was it. The spy had been caught. The case was over. But just a few days later, British journalists tracked down Jana Prager in Vienna in Austria. There, she admitted to the People newspaper that it was she, not her husband, who was the main player. She said, One day I saw some documents which Nicholas had brought home. I didn't know what it was all about, but I didn't like it. I knew Malik... I decided I was going to photograph it. I can't remember if I used the car or went by train to take the pictures to Malik in London. He didn't pay me. I didn't want the money. He arranged for my children to go on an international holiday camp in Czechoslovakia. She said she got a skiing holiday as a thanks, but her husband knew nothing about it. Jana said Nicholas wasn't political, but she was a communist. It's a better society in the East, she said. 
She said she'd always felt out of place in England. Even her children didn't like her Czech accent, she said, and had refused to learn her native tongue. I always thought that she was 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 much more of an active player than she was. But she, I mean, she was never charged mm. um, because she, there was no evidence to connect her to any of this. In the following weeks, Jana was named as the other woman in a divorce petition by the wife of chief technician Francis Patient. Despite her love for communism, Jana eventually settled in West Germany. She was never subjected to any prosecution. As for Nicholas, well, he appealed his conviction without luck and served half of his 12-year sentence. He was stripped of his British nationality in 1974. When he was released in November 1977, there were attempts to deport him, but there was a problem. Nobody would have him. He, he was studying for a master's degree in, uh, in maths. Uh, whilst he was in prison, um, and he wanted to complete his his, um, his his studies when he came out of prison uh, and make some use of it. He was a very clever chap. Um, uh, he, he wasn't a uh, he wasn't a fool by any means. Mm. Um, and I think, if 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 I'm honest, he was more put up to what he did with with by in, being instructed by Yana than he ever was with his own intentions. stayed um, with, with a, a family somewhere in Essex, I think. Um, he was only 54 when he died. More than half a century has passed since the case of the spy, his wife, her lovers and the dead letter drop. Later newspaper articles would describe Nicholas Prager as a master spy, but it strikes me that he was a man who got caught in a trap. Between his wife and the Czech agents, and being overlooked, he made some poor decisions, but he was at the mercy of others. He wasn't the first man to be caught like this, and he certainly wouldn't be the last, but perhaps the most shocking thing is how poor Britain's own security was to firstly allow him to leave an RAF base with these documents, and then to allow 10 years of communication between him and Czechoslovakia. Nicholas Prager was convinced by his father that they should become British. It was the right nationality. How ironic that this dream country would be the one he would later betray. And we really must pause for a moment to think of the Prager's children. I haven't mentioned them in any detail here, but they had three. What must it have been like to grow up with their parents in the papers, with this complex and confusing backdrop to their young lives, and now to have carried this for a further half century? For Detective Sergeant Michael Burdis, this was an exciting break from the more routine inquiries in his career. In a normal producing career, you don't often get a chance to be involved in a spy investigation. Um, it's, it's, it was quite a unique thing, really. If you want to read more or look at articles from the time about the case, about Nicholas or Jana Prager, head to robertsmurphy.substack.com. We are a completely ad-free, independent podcast, so any support you offer makes a huge difference. And please do follow this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this episode compelling, we have another case from Michael Burdis. This will be for our next podcast documentary out in a few weeks' time. It'll be for paid subscribers only. It's 1983, and Michael's on the hunt for a serial killer. The man is wild, dangerous, but the police have set a trap. Music
he thought that he was SAS material and that uh, whatever the SAS did, he could do as well. Um, and he used to fantasise about that. He was, if you like, fearless of being caught uh, because he would fight his way out of it. Where would he go next? Um, and what would attract him to go, to go somewhere? We wanted to get a plan that, that would try to focus where he was. Behind the Crimes is written, presented and produced by me, Robert Murphy.